I don't know if you've noticed, but this is a challenging time for state and local officials. We're having to rapidly embrace a 24-7 digital world in the midst of a pandemic. Luckily, iConstituent.com is on a mission to help digitize services with the first platform designed specifically for the elected official to manage one-to-one personal engagement. See for yourself how their texting outreach tools are making positive impacts during the pandemic, from the city of Los Angeles to the halls of the U.S. Congress. They allow leaders to leverage data sets of constituent phone numbers to share updates on COVID and assist constituents with breaking through the red tape to get the help they need. Visit iConstituent.com to access recent case studies and get started with 5,000 text messages at no cost. Again, that's iConstituent.com. Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. I'm proud to say that we're closing in on both our second anniversary and our 50th episode. The New Deal and I are grateful to have shared some amazing leaders with you during that time. From Mayor Pete, when he was just a mayor, to rising stars in the Democratic Party like Senator Ramesh Akberry, Boise Mayor Lauren McLean, and Wisconsin Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes. I believe that these leaders deserve a national stage. I hope you will help them, and me, by telling a friend about an honorable profession and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And guess what? We're now on Instagram. Follow us at hashtag an honorable profession. Welcome to an honorable profession. I'm Debbie Cox Bolton, CEO of the New Deal, where we're proud to support so many of the leaders you hear on this podcast. Today I'm filling in for our regular host, Santa Cruz Supervisor Ryan Coonerty, an inspiring public servant in his own right, as he deals with the major wildfires in his area. Our hearts are with him, his family, and his community. In this episode, I was honored to speak with Mayor Anna Tovar of Tolleson, Arizona. She shared her inspiring story of turning a life-threatening personal experience into life-saving work as an elected official representing her hometown. We talked about her incredible journey from school teacher to the State House and City Hall, and our current run for statewide office. We discussed governing in these extraordinary times, the changing political landscape of Arizona, and the value of electing more women to serve. I am so inspired by this woman, and I know you will be too. So Anna Tovar, welcome to an honorable profession. Thank you, thank you, Debbie, thank you for having me. Of course. So here's what I wanna ask you to start. Um, There's just so much going on in our country right now, and mayors are really, Across the country, they're on the front lines. You know, that's the pandemic, the recession, the fight for racial justice. You know, you're governing in really unprecedented times. So I just want to ask you a real broad question to start. You know, what is it like to be a mayor right now? And and is it different than what you expected when you were elected in 2016? Wow, that is um, a great question, Debbie, because definitely it is not what I expected um, when I was elected and sworn in in 2016. I had the honor of serving and being the first female here in the city of Tolleson um, in its 90-year history. So it was just great coming into this position. But, you know, when the pandemic hit, it was definitely fast and furious in regards to action um, on my behalf because I knew it was crucial. And I'm very thankful for 
um, New Deal in providing me that guidance, uh, the talks that we have, the webinars, the Zoom meetings, and you know, sharing with my sisters, uh, mayors here in Arizona, it really was was able to hit the ground running um, and making sure I was doing everything possible as a mayor. But as you said, we're in the front lines. Um, it is tumultuous times, especially when you get those phone calls from constituencies, because you know that you know local government is the closest to its constituency. And you know, I have people that are calling me, texting me, uh, neighbors that are requesting, you know, just questions. And those are hard conversations, especially when you know you have a neighbor a constituent that lost their life um, that has lost their job that has a child that is sick with covid uh, we get those calls as mayors day in and day out um, unlike you know you know governors who are not getting those uh, very tough calls and are able to distance themselves from this pandemic where uh, we receive it as mayors day in and day out 24 hours a day seven days a week yeah and let me ask you about covid um, and how things are going. I know that, you know, Arizona was a real hot spot um, during the summer and communities of color across the country were hit particularly hard. And it feels like that was true with Tolleson as well. Um, you have about I think 7,000 people in your, in your town, um, mostly Latino, many essential workers. So how are things going right now? Have things gotten any better for you? Well, as you mentioned, you know, here in Arizona, we hit a surge uh, with cases because the governor acted very slowly to close um, our state down and actually acted very quickly to reopen it without any science and data backing up uh, those, um, you know, to reopen um, as he did. So my city, I closed um, my city two weeks before the governor took action and then once he started taking action, he actually stripped our jurisdiction from us and making any changes that deviated from his um, executive orders. So that put us in a bad predicament where uh, we weren't able to control our own destiny of our own city in regards to a pandemic. So that was very frustrating. And I would say um, that's what caused the surge uh, for us to see those spikes, uh, especially in communities of color like mine, where we're 90 percent Latino. Um, just over, I would say, just short of a month ago, the county health department declared us a hot spot. We, we were 2.5 times uh, higher in our diagnosis than Maricopa County. Um, so it was a troublesome statistic to see that, you know, I had been asking for numbers, data for about four months. Um, and it wasn't until I was, you know, till we hit a hot spot that the county health department notified us and gave me the numbers that I've been asking for for months. Um, so there isn't a playbook and, you know, there isn't that national um, cohesiveness, the national plan that we're all seeking, uh, let alone a, a, a Arizona plan from our governor. Um, you know what, sadly, I haven't even sp spoken to my governor in regards to COVID uh, throughout this entire pandemic because there is, you know, very little communication with his office and with mayors as well, too. That's hard to hear. But I will say, that, yeah, I think you did have one thing when you were dealing with a lot of these issues, which, and you mentioned this on the, in the top, um, your sister mayors. Um, you, you have a, 
a real powerhouse of other female mayors around you from your fellow New Deal leader, Kate Gallego in Phoenix, uh, Regina Romero in Tucson and Coral Evans in Flagstaff. And I know that a lot of you, um, that you came together on a lot of these issues. I saw, um, saw you, a lot of you on uh, TV nationally talking about the mask mandates, talking about uh, the need for more resources for testing. How great has it been to have um, that kind of solidarity with, with other female mayors in Arizona to, uh, to work together? Oh, it's definitely been a blessing to have um, the friendship and just our collaboration because we truly care about, you know, just doing things properly, scientifically and factual based that we know has been proven to slow the spread of of COVID-19. So we've established the relationship, you know, before COVID hit, which, you know, worked out great. And we're always texting, calling one another as well, too. Um, I really admire all my sister mayors and our courage in regards to holding the governor accountable, holding our president accountable, and really demanding that we're on the front lines. We are seeing things every single day. We need the resources because ultimately we can't do it alone. Um, we're trying our best, but you know we're doing what we can with the resources that we have. But imagine what we can do if we were... Uh, you know, collaborating together, unifying um, as one, as one state in trying to tackle this issue. Um, And so I also credit our New Deal as well, too, in regards to trying to bring us together, having solutions that are working across the country so that we don't have to reinvent the wheel as mayors as well, too. That has been truly helpful as well. Yeah, that's great. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about how you got into public service to begin with. Um, I think, as you noted, you grew up in Tolleson, where you're now mayor. Um, You were the granddaughter of Mexican immigrants and migrant farmers. And I think you worked in your family's grocery store uh, before leaving for college. I'd love to hear about that experience and what um, being in a community institution like a grocery store would have taught you about community. Yes. Um, I had a very unique upbringing, which when I was so small, I thought everybody grew up in a small grocery store as well, too, until I went to kinder and my kindergarten teacher busted my bubble on that. (laughs) Uh, So when I was three days old until I was 33 years old, our family owned and operated a small grocery store here in the city of Tolleson. Um, so I grew up in the store. I mean, this, these were, you know, eight to 10 hour days every single day of my life um, with my family, my grandparents and my uncle. Um, so really instilled the value um, of how to, number one, treat others, but number two, servicing one's community. I can remember very clearly uh, my grandparents telling me, you know, we didn't open the store to make millions of dollars. We opened the store because we wanted to help others in our community. Um, and they, you know, grew up as migrant farm workers and knew uh, what it meant to struggle, but came to the United States for a better life uh, for their kids and for future generations. And so I, I feel that I was, you know, blessed with this type of upbringing because um, not only did I know everything about how to run a store in a small business at a very young age, um, I got to know our customers And I got to know what they liked, what they didn't like, what was happening in their families, the trials, the tribulations, the highs and lows um, of a family and being able to to help our families that that needed it um, at their moment of need. You know, there was many times that my grandparents, um, my grandfather in particular, would pull a person aside because he knew they were going through a tough time. 
you know, there back then there were raids that would actually, you know, come down the street. And when the migrant film workers would come into our store, there would be a migrant bust um, there and the immigration would be pulling, you know, families apart that were exiting the store. And that was my first visualization of what immigration can do uh, to families. And so I learned very quickly that families were being torn apart. Um, and so my grandfather would pull, you know, the mom or dad aside when he saw them again in our store and said, look, I, I know you're going through some very tough times. Take what you need um, and you can pay me whenever you can. Um, and th those were just things I would see on a day in day out basis um, about how one person could actually help another person and change that trajectory of that person's life. And so I that, you know, I got to see every day and, and it stayed with me. And, you know, my parents, my grandparents, and my uncle, you know, definitely told us that, you know, this is, you, there's a purpose to your life and you got to use that to help others and never forget where you come from. I love that so much. And um, I got goosebumps. And, uh, you, you know, that you really took that lesson to heart, obviously, about service. When you when you first started um, your career, you started as a teacher, right, a kindergarten and a first grade teacher. So uh, a different kind of service. Um, I'm curious about what made you think that running, you know, that running for office was something you wanted to do when you first decided to run for the city council. Yeah, so I actually I thought I would be a kindergarten or first grade teacher for the rest of my life. And I would have been ecstatic about it because I loved teaching. I loved the little kids. I loved um, being able to teach them how to read and just to know that they could be anything they wanted in the world. Um, so that to me was a true blessing. And I applied at one school and that school was in Tolleson, the school that taught me. And I purposely did that because of my grandmother that said, remember to give back to your community. Um, and truly, um, the great years of my life were, were teaching. I really thought I had everything going on in, in regards to teaching. And, you know, my two young kids was married, had my house. Um, you know, everything was going great until cancer hit. Um, and right before cancer hit, um, I was asked if I would, you know, run for the city council. And, you know, I was like, I'm a teacher. I have two kids. I don't think I have time. I'm, you know, um, at that time, I think I was vice president of our teachers union and um, caught the eye of just women in our community. You know, hey, you're making progressive changes. You know, why don't you try and make it on a grander scale? Um, and my answer was like, I'm a teacher, I'm a wife, and I have two young kids. <laughs> I don't think I'll have time. But they persisted. And thank goodness they persisted. They invited me to a council meeting. And that's where I, I attended. And um, they said, just attend it and, you know, talk to us afterwards. And after the meeting, I was convinced to run because I saw the dais and there was no one that looked like me. No one. And I was like, wow, they're making changes about, you know, things that affect my life on a day in, day out basis living here in Tolleson. Um, I'm just not going to be able to complain. I got to step up and run and do something. And that's how I got started on city council. I actually took on a 12 year incumbent um, and I went door to door with my kids in their stroller and started just talking to people about things I wanted to see changed and things I wanted to do, a true grassroots effort. Um, and at the end of the day on that election um, night, I was down by like 20 votes. But on Friday, when all the early ballots were counted, um, I had beat them by 12. Wow. 
That's that's so great. And, and there's a lot to unpack there. You, you talked a lot of, about a lot of important issues that I want to dive into a little deeper. First of which maybe is um, the decision to run when you had two small children. So I'm a working mom, you're a working mom. Uh, we know that that is not an easy thing to be. So tell me about what that was like to run for office with young kids and then eventually to to govern both, you know, as a city councilwoman. And, we'll, and I'd like to go come back to the cancer question because that's a really important piece I know of your story. But eventually you'll get to the state legislature. So and you were, you were legislating uh, with young children. So what's, what's, what's it, what was that like to both govern and campaign with those um, with those small boys? Well, it was it was a challenge. I'm not going to lie. Um, it was. But I mean, I think once you decide once I decided to to run um, and I had the support of my husband and my family and they were just like, look, we 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 need your voice up there. You know, you need to do it and we'll support you. And so I had that help from my family, from my husband um, in, you know, with with our children and I think it was looking back on it now because they're in, you know, early 20s right now, my boys, and they don't know anything different than their mom being in public service, whether it's at the city council level, the state level, um, or as mayor. They know me as, you know, just mom, but they've experienced this whole journey with me. And, you know, I'm grateful that um, I was able to expose them to things that, you know, hopefully would change their their lives as well, too. And and wanting either to serve in public service or, you know, just knowing that there's great people, great organizations, um, and people's voices do matter. So they've seen it all. I mean, they've seen through the tumultuous times at the state legislature where, you know, I was getting death threats during SB 1070, you know, to the great times, you know, as well, too. But um, I feel that was a great experience for them to grow up in. Um, and I wouldn't change a thing right now. And if there are women trying to decide if they're going to run or not, I would say run, run um, and do your best because you don't need to know all the answers to everything. Um, you just need to be passionate, want to listen, learn and lead. Um, and that's what I did. I mean, I just jumped on in, you know, not knowing how how to run a campaign, how to, you know, do things. But I asked a lot of questions, uh, took a lot of training and learned along the way and um, tried to help other females uh, that are trying to get into public service right now, too. But you can do it. I mean, if I were able to juggle it, um, there's many other women out there that can that can do it. I love it. Do you think it's gotten any easier um, since you first ran? It's been a while. We've seen so many more women step up and run. Do you think that that's made it easier for women who are deciding to run now? I hope so. I mean, I really think, um, you know, the more women that run and the, the more we lead, the more that just everyday moms that can see us can be like, wow, you know, they, if they can do it, I can do it. And hopefully bring that inspiration for more women to run. Um, you know, there was tough times, especially at the very beginning, um, where, you know, being discriminated against, you know, being a female, also being of a minority, um, being Mexican. I mean, I was, you know, just felt like, at, especially at the state capitol, that it had to be twice as ready and prepared and knowing my facts inside and out, ready to debate. I, I had to be extra prepared. I, I experienced that discrimination on the first day I was sworn in. Um, I took a, it was an appointment uh, that I, that I was uh, selected to, to take at the state legislature. So I came in about six weeks late and I was sworn in. My family, you know, was there, my, my two boys, my husband, my mom, and my family up in the gallery. 
um, which was a great day. And we went out to eat after and I was coming back to the state capitol because I had my first uh, judiciary committee hearing. And I went into the elevator and two of the representatives that were on the floor of the opposite party, they looked at me and they said, oh, you must be the new secretary. And I looked back at them and I said, excuse me, you just saw me like two hours ago getting sworn in on the new state representative. And one of the gentlemen who's now since retired um, said, well, honey, I got ties that are older than you. And I looked back and I said, well, it looks like you need to get some new ties and I'll be the one to help you get some new ties. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. I mean, that is just unbelievable. Um, and it goes back to th- something you said earlier, I think about that representation and you looking at that dais at the city council, and not seeing someone like you on, on uh, up there. And I just think that that is so important for women to see and you know and people of color to see people who look like them in, in these positions so you know thank you for stepping out early and leading on that i do want to come back to that question about you mentioned your cancer you are a two-time leukemia survivor and i know that as a legislator in particular you were a huge advocate to try to restore funding that had been cut by the then governor um, for transplant uh, patients um, tell us just about that experience and how it shaped your your life and your public outlook on public service? And also, what would you say to people who've had experiences and then want to be advocates, whether or not they're in elected office? Oh, great question. Um, So I really, truly feel that I was meant to be where I was at. um, And there was a purpose for me to be at the state legislature during this time. So you mentioned the the cuts to transplants happened during the recession in 2010. Um, and there were 99 patients in Arizona that were on its uh, Medicaid access plan here in Arizona from one day to the next. Um, their lives changed for the worse, where they received a letter in the mail that said, you know, due to the legislative cuts and, you know, the governor approving these cuts, you're no longer eligible for a transplant. In fact, there isn't a transplant that you'll have because the funding has been has been cut. So those 99 patients had exhausted any other option um, for survival and their transplant was their last chance um, of survival. So when I was at the state capitol, you know, I I found out about this story and I said, well, clearly this has to be a mistake. You know, like this ha- could get fixed, you know, immediately. Let's try and do that. So I focused on trying to bring about a quick solution, but found out very quickly that no one wanted to restore $1.45 million to the budget to save 99 lives. Um, they used some incorrect data in saying that transplants weren't effective of saving people's lives. So that's when I said, okay, I'm here for a reason, and let me share my story of how two transplants saved my life. And so shared my story with my colleagues then with um, media as well, too. And then I said, okay, well, I'm going to be the person that's going to carry this water and going to be the voices uh, for the 99 patients. And so I started contacting them and asking them to contact me. So we came up quickly with a plan where either if the patients were well enough and some weren't, where their families would come as well, too, and share their story to their state rep and their state senator. Um, I then drafted 12 different types of bills to restore this funding and save their lives. Um, I actually fundraised 
the $1.45 million to actually get it back into the state's budget. So I, I also asked for the governor to talk to me every single day, and she refused. About six months into this journey, the third person had passed away. Um, and granted, I, I got to know a lot of these families and patients. And this last person that passed, he actually went to the same uh, cancer clinic that I did. Um, he was tw 22 years old, passed away. And that night we had a vigil at the state capitol. And I was just upset. I was like, wow, there's people dying because people's in action. I have multiple solutions sitting right in front of you and just frustrated at the inaction of the governor. And so that night I was on Fox News and I said some choice words, all professional, of course, but <laughs> caught the eye of the governor where the next day their office called and said, you're not going to stop, right? I said, no, I've just started the fight. So I have the solutions and actually you can take full credit for everything you restore. I just want these people to have a second chance at life. And so from that call, uh, about five days later, transplants were reinstated. Um, and at that time, 96 people were able to get their transplant and be back on the list. And the day that we reinstated the funding, there was a double lung transplant recipient named Tiffany Tate and the day that we reinstated the transplants she got a call saying that she had two lungs waiting for her um, for her transplant so the timing was critical where Tiffany Tate was able to receive her double lung transplant the very next day um, and she lived for a lot of years um, since then and I got a phone call a couple years ago saying that she had passed, um, and it was from her dad. And her dad had said, thank you for your fight, because I had all these extra years with my daughter. She was able to get married. She was able to coach. She was able to live a great life. Um, and truly, I believe that I was there for a reason. I'd gone through my journey of cancer not once, but twice. And that it's just taught me so much um, on how to advocate for others. And especially those that have gone through similar situations. I implore you to use your experiences um, to be the voice for those that are struggling through that similar situation now. Because your story, uh, your experience will change and can change policy if it needs to. But we need everyone just to to share their story and it can be difficult. I mean, it, I mean, you could hear me, it, it is difficult for me because it brings back those memories, some good, some bad, but ultimately, you know, use your experiences to help another person, to help a cause so that people don't have to relive a, an experience similar to, to what we've gone through. Oh, and I'm so sorry for the, those you lost, but it is um, such a powerful testament to the change you were able to bring. I'm a little teary, so <laughs> but that is just a, um, an incredible story, and thank you for sharing that with us. And just a reminder of how um, public service can change lives, you know, real lives, um, one at a time. So thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. 
I'd like to talk a little bit about um, your decision to run for mayor, um, to come back home and run for mayor of your hometown. Um, and you also have, um, you are now running statewide, actually, for a corporations commission, which I should note for non-Arizonans um, is an, the elected public utilities commission in Arizona. I don't think that's, I think that's named differently than a lot of states. Um, I, I'm interested in kind of what factors go into your decisions um, to seek an office, to seek higher office. Um, what goes into your thinking about, uh, about that? Great. So I would reflect back on my cancer journey in regards to what I learned during that journey. So before that, I was a person who would easily talk her way out of things of saying, oh, no, I don't have all the answers or no, I don't have enough time um, out of a decision. But after cancer, my whole life took a new took a new stance and a new purpose was like, okay, I almost died not once, but twice. But um, what do I have to lose now? So that fear of the unknown, the fear of failure kind of went out the window and was like, okay, well, you know, I'm going to try. And if I don't get it, I, I bet I'm going to learn along the way, you know, just things that I could use to make me a better person. So I took that, um, when I took a little break from the state capitol, I had a family member that was um, ill with cancer um, and I committed myself to helping um, her go through her journey as she helped me with mine. So for me, it was a, a easy decision where others thought, wow, you're leaving um, as being the minority leader of, of the Democratic Party at the state Senate. And I was like, no, um, my family comes first. And, you know, positions will be here for me at any time. You know, in, if I wanted to come back to serve, they're always going to be there, you know, where my family member may not. So I went through that journey and thankfully she came out great and, and is doing great today as well too. Um, and so I was talking to her and she was saying, well, what do you want to do now? Uh, and I was like, you know, I'm not ready to go back to the state. I really want to focus on my community because I don't see it progressing um, as it once was. And so that just brought that thought back into my mind of saying, okay, am I going to just sit here and complain or I'm going to go and do something about it? So that's when I decided, okay, I'm going to go do something about it and run for mayor um, and took on that, you know, very seriously and, and committed myself to, to winning and tried my hardest. And thankfully, um, the voters selected me to be their first female mayor. Um, and it's truly been an honor to to represent them. But it goes back to, you know, taking that risk because, you know, yes, you may fail or you may win, but you're going to learn along the way of, of things about you and things how to make you a better person. Um, and I could have stayed as mayor, you know, for a very long time. We don't have term limits. And so I, I could have continued. But the issue of the environment and serving on the Corporation Commission, you know, it, to me, it hits near and dear to my heart with my cancer and and wanting to move our state forward in a trajectory of more renewable energy, uh, being the voice for Arizonans, um, and restoring trust and accountability back to the commission. So again, I was confronted with, you know, I'm going to just complain or am I going to do something? And so at that point, I was like, I'm going to run for state office <laughs> and I'm going to give it a try. Win or lose, I'm going to try my hardest and 
and hope that all Arizonans know that I'm going to be there to represent them at their time of need. So here in Arizona, the Corporation Commission covers quite a bit beyond utilities. It affects, you know, everyday Arizonans um, every single day, whether they're flipping a switch, flushing a toilet, pumping gas into their car, cooking with gas, um, figuring out, you know, how we move forward on renewable energy, um, our power lines, our railroads, when you establish a small business, if you invest in stocks and bonds, that is all covered within our Corporation Commission here in the state of Arizona. So it, I like to call it, it's the probably the most very most powerful entity um, that's written into our state constitution as a separate entity um, of government where people, it affects people every single day, but they know very little about um, the power that that commission holds. I love it. Um, and I'm going to brag on you for a minute. I know that your primary was earlier this month and you were the, the top vote getter in the primary. So um, so good for you and congratulations on that. And we'll, of course, be watching that race uh, very closely as you head into November. And while we're on politics, I guess it, it's, you know, we are taping this episode um, on the heels of the Democratic convention. And as the Republican convention got underway here last night. So it would be remiss of me not to ask you about uh, the swing state in which you sit. Um, your state has voted Republican actually in every presidential election since 1972, I think with the exception of Bill Clinton's reelect in 96. Uh, but, it's, but it seems like the margin's getting closer and closer each year. And in fact, now you're looking at probably what's the most uh, watched Senate race with Mark Kelly, um, Democrat Mark Kelly taking on Martha McSally. You've got Jeff Flake leading a group of Arizona former and current electeds, I believe, Republicans endorsing Joe Biden this week. And at least according to 538, Biden's up in um, in Arizona right now, 4844. So I think my question to you, Anna, is, you know, what's going on in Arizona with this uh, these shifts? And is this really the year that Democrats uh, might go blue at the presidential level? Absolutely. I feel that this is the year that Arizona will be blue um, and will take Joe Biden and make him president. Um, we've been waiting for it for a very long time here in Arizona in regards to that representation that we need um, at a president and vice president. Um, I would say you're correct in regards to, you know, Jeff Flake and him supporting other Republicans that are supporting and voting for Joe Biden as well, too. And I, having served in a state legislature at a time, the most tumultuous times in our history where we were given a black eye for everything that we were doing wrong from SB 1070 to being just discriminatory of who you love um, and who you want to marry or in regards to your status um, as a dreamer. Those were all things that really tarnished the image of Arizona. Um, where you had, you know, at one time, Senator McCain leading on an immigration issue. Um, and then now you have other Republicans that are stepping up and saying enough is enough. Um, you know, I served when we had a very strong Tea Party and we were in the super minority. Um, and those were difficult days where all these uh, very hateful and hurtful legislation came through. And I, I know that, you know, being a, a native Arizonan, that Arizona is so much more better than that. And I'm just proud to see that now people are wanting to use their voice at the voters box to elect someone that represents their values and their priorities. So 
We are definitely not taking anything for granted. We love that we are a swing state. We've been hoping for this for many, many years and many election cycles, but the time has come now and we just need to show that action at the ballot box so that Arizona will will turn blue this year. I love it. Here, here. Let me um, ask you a final question. As you know, this podcast is really about an honorable profession. We've talked a lot about public service and its impact. Um, but I kind of want to end with a, another public service question for you. What, what do you, you talked a lot about what we've done, so we may, um, you can draw on some of that, but what do you think the most rewarding part of your years of public service have been, um, particularly, you know, governing through so many tough times, like you've talked about in the legislature with some of those um, really hateful uh, initiatives that were going on with COVID, um, you know, what is it about public service that, um, that, that gives you strength and that uh, you'd like people to know about, uh, about the profession? I would say I've, I have, I, I mean, I love public service. I think that's a part of who I am and um, how I was raised is to give back um, and just receive so many benefits from it, you know, and they weren't monetary benefits, but they were more benefits of friendship, of solutions that were solved for people um, who had needed that voice for me to be their voice and for me to bring that solution to them, um, to their community to represent their needs um, and issues. And for me, I mean, I'm, I'm blessed with those that have, um, have told me, you know, like you've changed my life because of what you did. And, you know, you were really there because you wanted to help your community. You weren't there just because you wanted to fill a space or, or have, you know, this ego or accolades. It was, you know, you were there for a purpose. And I think that goes back to, when I was a young girl at the store, you know, where my uncle would tell me, you know, we're here to help others right now. Um, and you never do something for someone um, expecting anything in return. You do it because it's the right thing to do. And he would tell us that, I would say, you know, once, you know, every two weeks, because we would encounter something at the store that would go back to that value of you do something because it's the right thing to do, not because you expect anything in return. But I would say here in public service, I've received so much just um, being humbled and being blessed to to be that voice for my community when they needed it the most. And I would say that's um, a true blessing. And that's what I look back at of, of being able to reflect of saying um, I did leave you know, that position or my community better off than when it started. Um, and actually for me, that that to me is is the true blessing of public service. Well, Ana Tovar, I want to thank you so much for joining me. I, I absolutely adore you, which you know. Um, I'm leaving I'm leaving here so inspired by you, to be honest. And, um, you know, I just really appreciate you sharing your heart and your strength and your story. Um, it is, um, it's a remarkable story and it's just such a reminder of, of how important public service is. So thank you. Thanks for your leadership in these extraordinary times. And we will be watching with great interest as you continue to do great things in Tolleson and in the state of Arizona. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.